Hello, and welcome to Biofilm Podcast. This is a show where I interview biomedical and life science professionals and ask them about their career, opinions about current events or thought-provoking topics, and their taste in movies or TV. You just described, the, I think, the thing that gets me up in the morning oh, with, really? with respect Fantastic. to my job. Because, well, that, that really is, so that's where the engineer never goes away. Hello, and welcome to Biofilm Podcast, a show that brings you to the forefront of biomedical research, biotech, pharma, and healthcare fields, and the professionals behind it. I'm your host, Pavel Rajov. Today's guest is Mike Orr. He's the Chief Sales Engineer with Precise Automation, a company that specializes in manufacturing and deployment of industrial collaborative robots for a range of applications, including life science research and diagnostics. Throughout his life, Mike was fascinated with robots and now realizes his passion bring these cutting-edge machines to the forefront of the fight against COVID-19. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. Thank you for having me, Pavel. Thank you. Before we get started, Mike, I wanted to say thank you again very much for joining me today. And for our audience, I mentioned that we've met at one of our networking events online previously. And uh, I realized that one of the topics of our conversation was how busy you are during this COVID-19 crisis. And Sticking with the recurrent segment that I like to start up my podcast with, what was the recent movie that you had a chance to watch? And have you even had a chance to, to take a breather and actually enjoy something? Uh, you know, nothing really recent uh, as far as recent releases, um, you know, but uh, I, I uh, so I got on the topic with a friend of mine about um, uh, a movie set that I actually worked on. And I wouldn't say the movie you know, I worked on, uh, it just, it was a very tiny uh, effort, uh, mainly of course, surrounding robots, but, uh, it did, uh, get me to actually pull up the old, uh, movie and watch Terminator. Oh, <laughs> that is a uh, because I, I, I was on the movie set of Terminator three, uh, and I actually, um, uh, operated some robots that didn't actually end up making it into the final film. They made it into an extra scene that, that was put on the DVD. But the, the memory I have was I got to meet Arnold Schwarzenegger and actually, uh, uh hang out with him on the set. So that, no that was way. a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm six foot eight, so he's, he's six feet tall. So he, he kept giving me, uh, all the business about, uh, you know, being so, so tall. Cause I, I was basically the same height as his, uh, uh, bodyguard who also, uh, does some work as a stand-in. So if you're not familiar with how, you know, movies, they, they'll often have a stand-in do rehearsals to get everything set up. And then they'll say the lines of the actor. And then, of course, when the showtime happens, that's when the actor comes in and they do their thing. That is fantastic. I mean, this must be one of the highlights of, of, your, of your, I guess, entire life. I mean, at least it would be in my case. <laughs> I never thought when I you know, first saw that movie in the 1980s that uh, I would be you know, hanging out with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And as an added bonus, I don't know why she was there, but Grace Jones was there. If you're familiar with Grace Jones, she was a... Uh, uh, his co-star in uh, Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> so well, I guess they're good friends or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that is phenomenal. I mean, this is, that's why I guess I like to start my podcast with these types of questions because you never know what kind of movie that, they, that people have seen or what kind of story they might associate you know, with a recent film that they might have seen. So that's really yeah. nice. So going back to, I guess, to the, to, the, to the days of when you were on set of Terminator, 
obviously you've been uh, trying to get to, into the career that has to do with electronics, robotics, and things like that, and uh, cutting edge science. So where did the fascination with these types of things really come to, in, into your life? Like what was the main inspiration that you found to jump into that field? Well, the, my brother and I both had an opportunity that uh, my parents afforded us as uh, it was, you know, for he's older than I am. And for him, it was his junior year in high school. And seven years later, since I'm seven years younger than he is, it was uh, a junior year of high school for me. And in fact, um, uh, uh, basically, my parents said, hey, we're going to go on a trip. Where do you want to go? Uh, it's, you know, like an international trip. That was the idea. Now, I could have said, well, let's go somewhere in the U.S., but I, I wanted to go somewhere overseas. And at that time, I was fascinated with cars um, in many ways, uh, especially just the, the German car manufacturing, uh, you know, and I wanted to see, like, where these really amazing machines came from. This is back in the early 90s, so, you know, cars were, there was a lot of excess, let's say, in cars at that time compared to now the cars are a lot more efficient than they used to be but back then i mean gas mileage was really not a big consideration so my choice was let's go to germany and let's go tour some car factories and so my oh first my car factory I ever toured was a factory i've actually been back to as a you know uh, somebody a working adult was the uh, bmw manufacturing plant in munich which is you know the, the headquarters mm -hmm. and they have you know they really go over the top in this great tour we got to see all the robotics and then i also saw the mercedes factory in sindelfingen which is also very famous because the first uh internal combustion commercial internal combustion engine is still there uh and they still start it a couple of times a day to show people you know this amazing single cylinder engine that was used to power a car back in the 1900s early oh my gosh how did you score that kind of trip? Like, did you have to make like arrangements to, to get there? Uh, yeah, there were a lot of plans to be made. I mean, mainly it was my, my dad, uh, I grew up in a family of seasoned travelers. I think everybody was um, just geared to, to travel. We've always been that way. I'm, you know, a, a multi-generational sales uh, family, right? So mm -hmm. most of, actually, everyone in my family studied something outside of like business and something like that. My father was an agronomist. My great-grandfather was a electrical engineer that worked at uh, uh, Oak Ridge National Laboratories back during the World War II uh, when they were developing the, the atomic bomb. And, and, and so I've always had this exposure to technology and and just the inspiration of science and how it can be applied. And I think that was just, you know, it's, it's, it's really not a big deal for, for us. And still, and, and for me, I pride myself on the fact that sans COVID-19 uh, regulations, I will hop on a plane on a regular basis, usually five, six times a year mm -hmm. and go to Europe usually um, to work with customers there because the, you know, the robotics field is an international one. Yeah. Uh, but I think I wouldn't have had that inspiration if it weren't for that upbringing of, of I, being, about, being around a bunch of travelers. Yeah, absolutely. So the robotics field is something that I think a lot of people, and I would say myself included, are sort of uh, cautious about in, in terms of it's very challenging to get into. And you really have to really focus maybe all of your career around studying this type of technology. And just uh, from an outside perspective, what are, what are the maybe um, 
advice you can give for people who might be interested in uh, trying to learn more about robotics? Do they have to start from like undergraduate <laughs> studies or they can actually jump in in, some, in the middle of their career into that? No, I don't think it's, it's really something, um, even today. So back when I started in engineering school, this is where I went to school at Texas Tech University in, in Lubbock, Texas. And, you know, the, the engineering programs in 1994 were pretty traditional. The, the newest one was computer science. But the, the rest of the engineering fields were the same, IE, EE, ME, PE. Uh, Chemi, those uh, petroleum as well. We had petroleum engineering, um, and of course, being in Texas, that was a big one. But really, you know, the those fields are, you know, like robotics and a lot of other fields in general uh, these days. Bioengineering is a good one, right? There's a, a mix of of traditional engineering with biology. Um, robotics is a mix of of electromechanical uh, engineering, which is exactly what I said, electrical, the control side of it combined with the mechanical engineering side. And if you, you look at most disciplines, they're like that. Now, you can go study uh, robotics. Uh, controls engineering is now, I think, a focus at some of the universities. And I know universities like Cornell and uh, MIT take a, a closer look at the electromechanical side of things. Mechatronics is really what they call it. Uh, I think University uh, Santa Clara is one of the top uh, mechatronics along with Cornell uh, these days. I mean, but, you know, really at the end of the day, it's like a, it just plants the seed of an idea. And I think these days uh, robotics is so close to the engineering uh, education experience these days because I know when I was working at my first company, Stroibly in South Carolina, we were donating robots to, to Clemson, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, it's quite common for you know universities to have this interaction with robotics companies to uh, you know get get their students exposed to the concept of using robotic automation. But it's it's really a, a very basic and fundamental exposure. And and it's really from that point, you know, does that seed of an idea in a student's head get planted so they go off and pursue other things because it's really once you get out of the industry where you can you can take that further but you know hopefully in the in the university setting they get the idea to go pursue perhaps a robotics company like like i did uh to start out their career mm -hmm. and when we talk about robotics there's in your case you're saying you come from a family of people who do who do sales and do this type of traveling and you have, I guess, have gravitated or rather maybe balanced doing the robotics on yourself as an engineer, as well as doing the sales. So which one do you think you enjoy doing most and, uh, and why? Well, I think when I first started in robotics, you know, most, so, you know, sales is not a career, I, I think, in general for most people coming out of school. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, it, it adds a dynamic to the business that I, I don't think most you know, green engineers coming out of school are going to be um, really engaged in, you know, there's still a fascination with the technology itself. And the typical job that you come out of school with is applications engineering, because, uh, and, and believe it or not, application engineering is as much sales as sales is, because hmm. what you're doing is you're taking a customer's needs, and you're turning that in, you're, you're thinking about it, and you're considering it from the different angles and the experience allows you to look at things at more angles, and that's the key. 
uh, and, and you're figuring out, okay, how do I go from this problem that they want to solve to applying the product that I'm responsible for? Because if you're working for a commercial company, the idea is to get more of those products out into the market. Yeah. So you're pitching the product just as much as the frontline folks are on the, in the sales process. So that's something I would stress is that, you know, applications engineering in general uh, for, in robotics is as much sales as, as any, uh, anyone on the front lines. It's just a different aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And as you know, if you're, if you're enthralled by that, if you really enjoy it, then you take that knowledge and let, you, if you want to go make some money and go into sales, you can, you can do that. And that's going to be the root of your skills as far as conveying that because you're going to do, be doing it right in front of the customer. And that's the transition, right? And mm -hmm. for me, it's one and the same. I, if when I'm sitting in front of a customer, I'm as much of an engineer as I'm a sales professional. They both have different needs. I'm serving uh, different needs of the customer and I'm serving different needs of my company that I'm representing. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really balancing those two things out. It's just really expanding on those horizons that you, you got experience with as an applications engineer. And now you're just opening up to a bigger piece of the business and, and a, a bigger, you have a much bigger responsibility for the sales process, mm -hmm. of course, and driving that, mm -hmm. but it's, it's fundamentally the same. Yeah, it's very fascinating you say that because uh, when I was preparing for this podcast, I, I obviously looked up your, your title is Chief Sales Engineer. And I, I guess inherently I wasn't quite sure exactly how do you combine the sales and engineer. But now like when you say that, it makes perfect sense. Like it's sales one of the is an thing. engineering process. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. So in, in terms of uh, the robots, it's obviously it's, it's uh, uh, hardware plus software. Which one, what's the sort of perfect balance that makes a good robot, like, and, and, and why? Well, uh, hardware is really a function of the application. So you, when I look at any robot application, I think, okay, do I need something that can pick up an engine block? Or do I need something that can pick up, as is the, most of the time for me, a micro titer plate? Uh, one is, you know, say, 400 kilos. The other one is 500 grams maximum. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, that's the first kind of order of business is to, to look at the mechanics and be upfront as to whether uh, there's going to be a solution built around something I can offer. Uh, from there, it's now a function of what is the business model surrounding how the robot's going to be implemented. So, for example, uh, robots end up in the real world um, in many different ways and through many different mechanisms. You know, if you go to a car plant, most of those came from a systems integration company. So there's a custom system builder that takes a robot that has nothing on it and develops tooling completely specific to making one piece of a car. If you go into a car factory, almost every gripper on every robot is slightly different or, or majorly different depending on what its purpose is. Uh, and that's a that's a bespoke solution, and the result is you get this very organic uh, apparatus at the end. It's a it's a car. I mean, it's amazing you can build a car with so you know so much uh, robotics and and not so many people. 
Uh, and, and that's for good reason, because most of those processes are dangerous, ha handling heavy things or welding torches and, and things like that. But in, in my business, is primarily handling a common shape. So it's a rectangle, it's a microtiter plate. So we're really just looking at, okay, can the robot work with all of the instruments necessary to complete a process? And that process could be anywhere from diagnostics, as we're seeing in the COVID-19 situation, to research and development. It's also related to the, the current situation as well, because uh, pharmaceutical products are uh, really products of you know years and years and thousands, tens of thousands of man hours of research, and the robots compress time for them. Right, so it's not doing something necessarily that's too dangerous most of the time, uh, but handling blood samples is an exception to that. But most of the cases, it's not really taking danger out of the scenario. It's taking re repetition and it almost, it actually, it's not almost, it is impossible quantities of repetition. So, you know, what you can do with a robot arm and a system that fits in the corner of a room would take several roomfuls of people to do in a lot longer period of time. So it's not even a question of people versus robots. Yeah. You do it with a robot or you won't be in business. That's the, yeah. simple, you know, the simple approach. It's a, a different way to look at it. But um, you know, from there, it's, it's just you know, once you mechanically figure out how the system's going to work and look like, yeah, software is important. What you wanna do is spend as little time on the software as possible. Uh, you, you don't, you know, developing robot code Maybe it sounds like good resume material, but when it comes to deployment, uh, that's the thing that most organizations don't have the time in, in the whole system timeline uh, to focus on. So we spend a lot of time focusing on how to minimize the amount of efforts used in software development. Mm -hmm. And the robots, as you say, they have to occupy very small, small space in a laboratory, but oftentimes uh, the, the question that I would have is, how do how would they work alongside humans, or do they have to work separately? Like, what? How do you guys address this type of um, problem that I think a lot of uh, people may be a little bit skeptical about, like having a yeah, robot right next to you? There's this term cobots or collaborative robots, and and uh, in, in, it's a very interesting concept that I've really focusing my my career on, in fact. Um, but there's a bit of a misnomer about what that means, and really. In, in most applications, a person is not working with a robot uh, very much directly, because if, if they're doing that, then the robot's not really doing what it should be doing, right? Mm -hmm. But on the flip side of that, if you look at most environments that utilize heavy amounts of automation, and the car plant is the classic example, but go into a plant where they make um, shaving razors for you know when you, you, you shave, right? I've been in these plants too. They're the same as a car factory, they're just smaller scale, right? Things are moving, you don't wanna to touch them, it's dangerous, you know, you've you got sharp objects, yeah. and everything is completely enclosed in a box for a good reason. In a laboratory, that's a different case, right? When somebody walks up to an instrument and they wanna use it, or they wanna, uh, let's say, service it and add fluids to it, reagents, whatever uh, uh, things that are accessories to the process that they have, if you ask them to shut everything down, you know, close everything up, and then you know start opening doors with door locks, it starts to maybe the robotics don't look as, as interesting anymore because 
it becomes a, a an ordeal just to do simple like refill uh, a container. Mm -hmm. And so what the collaborative aspect provides for those customers is the robot doesn't really behave much differently from any instrument they've worked with since they were in college. Mm -hmm. so they started studying biology or the field that they're in. Mm -hmm. And that's really the, the difference there is, is they're not handling something heavy. It's not usually not dangerous. Sometimes it is, and you have to have special considerations for that. But for the most part, these systems operate at an open laboratory. So why do anything different if you add a robot? And that's that's the the, the key there. And, and, and then it's not even intimidating. It's just that's the robotic arm that moves the samples through the process. Nothing special, right? I mean, it's... We're, don't have to spend a lot of time thinking about the robot because you just press pause, do your thing, or you just, you know, sometimes you can just keep letting the robot run because what you're doing isn't going to affect what the robot's doing. Absolutely. And in the process of, I guess, making the robot do what it's supposed to be doing is sort of, which is to shorten the man hours of, uh, for repetitive tasks. Do you, would you say that there is actually a possibility where you can, uh, invent a better way of addressing these questions with a robot in terms of completely reinventing the the workflow that it needs to be done to address a certain research question you just described the i think the thing that gets me up in the morning oh, with, really? with respect Fantastic. to my job because mm -hmm. well that that really is so that's where the engineer never goes away right you're always engineering and, and i have the benefit of having the bandwidth to see you know, things at a relatively top level. Granted, I'm not getting into too much of the details. You know, certain cases I am, but, you know, at a high level, I get to see a lot more than most people get to see. I am, you know, and, and again, you know, always respecting the confidentiality of customers, but I, I'm really mainly speaking of trade shows, right, where people are showing off uh, different approaches that they have. And, and of course, you know, everybody's getting ideas. And taking ideas not only from those sources, and most really more importantly from the customer, right? And just taking all that cumulative knowledge mm -hmm. and applying it to something new for a, a unique proposition, a unique scenario that that we want to solve. Uh, that, that that's really the fun of it because I've got the benefit of the bandwidth uh, across the entire industry, but at the same time. Uh, being able to work individually with customers to utilize that knowledge to just, you know, bring it all together at the right time in the right place. And that's where I was going back, you know, just going back to this whole transition from let's say applications engineer to sales professional is, is if you've got that desire to continue doing that and, and doing it in a bigger scale, that's, that's, I think plants the seed for robotics because robotics can be even with a simple robot, it can be extraordinarily complicated to put it into a process, but experience will give you the knowledge you need to do it. Absolutely. And we kind of bypassed a little bit how you jumped into the life science field and life science robotics specifically. So I'm curious to know what was the motivation behind going into that specific direction versus say car manufacturing or other types of robotics? Well, I had the opportunity. So, you know, it's, it's not so uncommon that if you work at a company and you're a vendor to somebody, you might go work for that company. So I, I actually jumped from my first job to one of our customers who was actually you know, my customer that I managed. And uh, it was an opportunity to get back into the engineering 
element a little bit to bring a, a robot from just you know industrial robot arm, which is you know how it starts, to a surgical robotic system. And so I stayed with that company five years. We took it from a prototype all the way to a marketed uh, FDA cleared surgical robot device. It's a, a hair transplant device. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it uses a commercial robotic arm. And that's when I, I spent a lot of time at that company getting familiar with human robot interaction. Now, not at the scientific level, um, I've got a, 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 a somebody I'm, I'm connected with on, on LinkedIn. She's a uh, you know, studies different um, aspects of human-robot interaction at a very researchy, scientific level. This was really just watching, you know, trying to figure out how can, how can we make this very hard-to-use tool for the typical doctor, at least, easy to use. And that's when uh, I started thinking about, okay, what markets will this have the most prolific effect? Uh, and I think... You know, collaborative robots, I, I've, I think there's a lot of different opinions there. Uh, uh, different robot companies have different approaches. But I think life science is the ultimate uh, application for this type of technology today that could change. But uh, And the reason being is because here you have an environment similar to physicians where it's, it's not super complicated to bring a collaborative robot experience to them. And since kind of discovering how far we can take it, we continue to take it further every day. It, it, that's when I realized this is the opportunity, I think, in the next 10, 15, uh, perhaps beyond. But I'm just kind of looking at the 10-year the timeline. I think life science will be uh, one of the most uh, interesting markets for robotics uh, in the near term. Absolutely. Actually, I saw a video uh, that was uh, from a hair transplant clinic highlighting this type of robot, and I didn't realize that you worked on it. I saw, I saw it fairly recently. So, and then it, yeah. looks, it looks amazing, that, that robot and how it's integrated into, into the pipeline of obviously addressing the, the hair transplantation issue. It's kind of amazing, yeah. Yeah, and, and that, that really set the, set the, the bar for me. Uh, you know, I'm thinking, well, if we can take a commercial nothing special about it that's the same robot you could get to make your cell phone okay mm -hmm. same robot uh to take that and put it into a clinical environment and and it, these things are all over the world there's hundreds and hundreds of them mm -hmm. uh at working with people who know nothing about robotics if we can do that mm -hmm. i think we can make a real impact on life science and that really was the the, yeah. the basis of my leaving that company to do what i'm doing now yeah absolutely with life science, I feel uh, being in the academic lab, since I just finished my PhD, I always was fascinated. Like, I wish I could automate this type of thing that I'm doing in the lab or, or whatever. And I always felt like robots are just beyond the price point of an academia. At which point do you think this might change where robots become such a commonplace? And like, when, when does the price would start to go down? Well, academia has always been an uh, interesting um, side of things because uh, of course it's not a commercially driven acquisition right anytime you're acquiring technology to go into that space uh, i think in my experience the price point of the types of technologies around automation have been driven down significantly just in my 22 years uh, i've been in the industry i remember a, a robot that was 
maybe uh, 600 millimeters in reach, six axis. That thing was over $60,000 when I started. You can get one of those for, for 20, maybe less uh, today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that's, that's pretty amazing. So I, I don't really think it's a, you know, the, the cost of the technology, I think, is, is asymptotically getting to a point where you're not going to get much lower. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with, look, it's made out of metal and it's made out of bearings, and it has a certain amount of uh, wiring and costs, uh, you know, just based on even mass manufacturing. You know, it, it's that cost reduction from sixty to twenty thousand dollars in twenty-two years is pretty amazing. If you think about something where the volumes haven't gone up nearly uh, the multipliers from, let's say, ninety-four when I joined, or ninety-eight when I joined, to uh, today compared to the number of cell phones that have been sold Definitely. annually mm-hmm. and and the, and the relative cost difference frankly a cell phone you know yeah it's got more features but it's about the same price <laughs> as a basic cell phone back then so i i don't you know i think it's uh it's a relative thing capital equipment is always being driven uh for cost reduction capital yeah. equipment companies it's kind of their the, the bane of their existence right we have to do make more money with less uh, uh, margin uh, or less, you know, the lower price. And then, uh, you know, that means you have to sell more, a lot more. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the robot industry just hasn't grown like that. In fact, it's it shrank uh, in, in some instances uh, along the way, especially certain markets. Uh, the automotive market still continues to be the pulse of robotics. So if you look at all the different industries that robots are used, the car industry drives it. Uh, the most. And if you think about the car industry, how many times has it been in, a, in kind of a little bit of a depressed state? Like right now, yeah, uh, it's about the best time you could buy a car in the last 10 years, I think. Okay. I, I should be on the lookout then. <laughs> yeah. Go, go get a car because they are offering deals like crazy because nobody's yeah. buying them. <laughs> Absolutely. But actually, in terms of the... Um, uh, the pace of uh, robotics innovation and sort of this market saturation. Do you think that uh, now that we we enter maybe a new phase in terms of how much innovation would be uh, uh, coming out in the next few years, especially as a result of uh, this push through the COVID-19 epidemic, or it's actually where it's going to be more of a linear progression going forward? Well, we're certainly going to be seeing a spike. I can tell you we're seeing it right now. Uh, the demand for robotics to handle uh, samples is unparalleled right now in, in the life science market. So you're going to see a tremendous spike. You know, uh, it's, it's going to continue to grow. Uh, we're going to see this spike here locally in, in the time we're in now, but it's conti- going to continue to grow. And I think a lot of it has to do with the, the COVID-19 specifically, um, Number one, research capacity uh, has been planned in most companies, right? They've had plans to increase capacity for research applications, right? To look at new things. That's always something that's in the budget for most of these companies because the more research throughput you have as a pharmaceutical company, then that opens up more opportunities to bring something to market. Because you know, you know how you've heard this in the the news, I'm sure, how long it takes to bring any product, if you will, mm-hmm. in life science to market. If it's a drug, 
you know, it has to, you get to research it, then you got to test it, then you got to test it again, and then you have to do trials. And uh, it's a long time frame, so you need to have a pipeline. And your research capacity is part of that pipeline. And it is a fact that uh, it's harder and harder to find new chemistries, uh, you know, bio biological solutions. Now we've got different, as I'm, I'm being very broad here, there's a lot of different um, areas of life science research, but you know, the general trend is it's getting harder and harder, harder to uh, find new things in, in pharmaceutical research. So you need more capacity, just like a car plant. Basically, you need to have, you know, uh, or, or like paint, more paint to throw on the wall. It's an educated throw, but you need more there. And you know, there's different projects where they're trying to optimize. Uh, for certain research fields and you know how how fast you can come to a meaningful result so you can decide to continue or, or deviate from there uh, but the fact is you need more research capacity at the end of the day and and on the other side of it the COVID-19 specific surge we're seeing now is mainly around the diagnostic side right one thing COVID-19 has, has shown us around the world is we just don't have enough diagnostic capacity to get the job done right we, you know they came up with the reagents uh, to to do the actual antibody test or the COVID-19 test, varying degrees of accuracy across the whole market. I'm, that's yeah. not my area of expertise, but that's 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 something that's there. But regardless of that, capacity wasn't there, right? To be able to you know produce test results as fast as necessary, assuming you have the appropriate test to try or to run for a patient. And so we're it's kind of like um, uh, places with crumbling roads, right? You wonder why the trucks don't get places on time. Well, it's because we, we, you know, our roads are out of whack and all of a sudden when you need all the trucks, all of a sudden the roads get fixed. And that's what's happening now is a big backfill of all this capacity that's needed for, you know, if, if pandemics like this are going to be a modern problem, which it sounds like they're, you know, it is, then you need to have the infrastructure in place to be able to test so you can, you know, keep things stabilized and not shut down the economy quite as long, or at least do it in a more educated fashion. Mm -hmm. It seems like uh, the, the likes of Tekken and Hamilton will just have a, uh, a really a field, field day for, for many months to come. Um, yes and no. I mean, it, you know, certainly a lot of essays are produced on liquid handling platforms. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, um, that backend technology of pipetting is is a fairly small group of companies, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I know yeah for sure they're 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 doing quite well because there's a lot of uh, modern essays and essay types that can be run directly on a liquid handler or, or need the support of a liquid handler. Let's say you know a bigger robotic system like PCR stuff. Um, you need a robot to attach to all that, but you're right they're going to do quite well in that sense. Um, but there's a, a, a lot of other things that are uh, growing beyond that because, you know, those are general purpose instruments mm -hmm. and they can do a lot of different things. Um, you can focus their use, but, you know, a lot of diagnostic instrumentation, you know, the, the, the goal is to make it fit in as many places as possible. And sometimes having a liquid handling deck isn't necessarily uh, ideal if you've just got a small lab. I mean, what if you could get your COVID-19 test on a small benchtop system that not only tests COVID-19, but also tests, you know, a hundred different other things, or 
maybe a single purpose instrument that can run a PCR or, or something like that where you insert and they fit on a bench top, you know. That's, there's a lot of other instrumentation businesses that are, of course, uh, seeing a huge growth right now because of it. Did, did you, when did you really experience the epiphany of, okay, this is going to be a lot more business and I'm going to be a lot busier for the many, many months to come? Like, when did that really hit you? Was that in February or January, perhaps? No, actually, it was last year. Because oh, when wow. they started talking about this stuff, uh, it was... Um, a virus and, and just a general demand of PCR, even if it wasn't something that went, you know, it didn't really go global. Um, it was starting to show up uh, later in the year, but it wasn't really something that we were all talking about until uh, really February. Mm -hmm. Things kind of hit in March here in the U.S. Um, but that's the thing is the extent, the reach of our, you know, the robotics business is way beyond the uh, just our locality here where i'm located right it's it's a global thing and um you know you could just kind of get the sense that okay we need to start doing um you know putting some dna sequencing into this and we're gonna you know because understanding a virus you know every year that goes by we're able to understand these things sooner uh and so when they figured this thing out they started sequencing it right away um, and that's because we have just general availability of sequencing technology that we didn't have 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and in 10 years before that, it was very basic, right? They were, yeah. you know, they just barely sequenced the human genome and, yeah. and the technology wasn't there to make it even viable to do it twice. You know, <laughs> well, we can do it once. We can't do it twice. Yeah. Now you can just do it over, you know, a couple of hours, you know, <laughs> so, yeah. Absolutely. Big change there, but I could see the the signs not not leading to what we got now, but I could just see the signs that things were you know people were looking at things more more closely. Yeah, as we wrap up our uh, podcast, we one of the things we mentioned was uh, some of the things that keeps uh, that uh, that basically you get up in the morning and you sort of want to address these uh, robotics questions. But what are the maybe challenges and the things that maybe keep you up at night that uh, in this type of field where we talk about Terminators in the beginning of our, of our talk and now the robotics. Is there anything that you may be skeptical about or just concerned about in your job? <laughs> well, I'm not holding my breath for Terminators uh, or AIs that go nuts okay. uh, other than making my coffee machine do the wrong things at the wrong time. That's about as nuts as uh, your AI, I think, is going to get in the near future or, or producing ridiculous results like, like it is now, in fact. You know, uh, AI is having a hard time digesting the way human beings are behaving while there's a pandemic. Yeah, That's because yeah. AIs don't have any data to deal with about pandemics. Yeah. So they've got no guidance, right, on what's right or wrong. So AI is already basically, you know, for the most part, well, in many ways, collapsed in its usefulness uh, in, in the state of a pandemic. That's uh, a very it, bold statement, by the way. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's, it's look, people are, are quite, if you're questioning your AI, what are you telling your customers to do, right? If they're relying on AI. Now, it's not, it's, it's just basically a, a dent. It's, it's, that's the purpose of AI, right? It learns mm -hmm. and, and, and it adapts, right? Well, we're just, you know, you just got to rec still recognize and point out, this is a time where it's learning and we're getting more data on how people are behaving. Uh, if it's an AI that's built around human behavior, stuff, you know, modeling, things like that. I'm not holding my breath for self-driving cars either. 
And uh, uh, that's one of those where I, I've always found that to be kind of just uh, Bay Area, uh, Silicon Valley, uh, let's, let's do this. And it sounds great. But, uh, you know, it's one of those things where I don't see that being solved uh, anywhere more than, let's say, uh, 98, 99% of the way in the next 40, 50 years. And do you really want a car that's 99% driving well on its own? Not, not so much, really, you know. Really. Again, I mean, it's just thinking through these things. They sound great. Uh, so I'm kind of glad that that's, that's actually going by the wayside for a lot of folks that have decided to invest in that. And they're spending more time on problems that we can solve today, which is, for example, AI for better decision-making around safety, right? That's an area where AI has always been questioned, right? And But there's, I think, a lot of work that can be done on improving the way humans interact with, with things in general, including the safety aspects of things, right? And including looking at trends on where, oh, this is gonna go off the rails. Because you know, imagine a computer has so much power, if it has the right data and the right inputs, it can make have decision-making much faster. So safety systems for cars, for example, detecting a person, detecting a ball, you know, and figuring out and helping the, the person mitigate what those things uh, could, what, what different events could happen. And, and that's the element of self-driving, if you will. It's not really self-driving, but that's the element where I combine those two, AI and self-driving. Let's put the self-driving thing on the back burner. Let's focus on what better value can we add to the human machine experience for whatever it is, you name it, whether it's interacting with uh, machinery, interacting with robotics and used in your daily day-to-day work, or interacting with a machine that a lot of people get in every day, a car, mm -hmm. right? And that's where I think a lot of those things um, uh, can help. But I, as far as keeping me up at night, it's really just yeah, getting enough machines out there because they're really heavily needed, right? I mean, that's like, you know, being able to, to get the machinery and the robots in the right place uh, to kind of, you know, help folks get, their head wrapped around the situation and, and future situations like yeah. this. Yeah, the, the, I guess the final question is, so do you have now a BMW? <laughs> I don't, I, uh, I, I, I kind of lost my, uh, so one of the problems with spending a lot of times in car factories, uh -huh. I can tell you, is they all start looking the same. And uh, when, you, when, you, when you see cars without paint, uh, and I've seen them all, Porsches, uh, I, you know, Renaults in France, or you go to Germany, Mercedes, BMW, you name it. Uh, it's hard to tell the difference, you know, other than, okay, that's a sedan, that's a coupe. A Porsche <laughs> is pretty distinguished, can't miss that. Uh, but unless it's a Ferrari yeah. or something like that, you really just don't, it's, it's just, I don't know, I, I became less uh, uh, involved in it, but I, I, I you know, I, I did make sure that the license plate was a right match for me. Uh, since I went to Texas Tech, uh, my license plate is R-O-B-O-T space T-X. And if you say that really fast, it's Robot T-X. And it sounds Very like robotics. Nice. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mike. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. It's a real pleasure. My pleasure, Pavel. Thank you for having me.